Jamaica is a very free and liberal country. The people uh, are very expressive, and I'm certain that you would have seen the spectrum of expressions yesterday. Um, there are issues here which are, as you would know, unresolved. This moment from March may not sound like it on the surface, but it is a very tense exchange. Yes, it's uncomfortable for us to listen to, so imagine how the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge must have felt. The person you're hearing is the Prime Minister of Jamaica, Andrew Holness, and he's holding a press conference. The occasion? The future king and queen consort of England, William and Catherine, are in the island nation for a state visit. William and Kate had travelled to Jamaica as part of the Queen's Platinum Jubilee celebrations. And I think it's fair to say they received a mixed welcome. Hearing the country's Prime Minister tell them it was time for Jamaica to move on appeared to have caught them both off guard. And it seemed he had his own agenda, suggesting that this trip was an opportunity for the royals to address unresolved issues, including reparations for slavery and the removal of the Queen as head of state. But your presence gives an opportunity for those issues to be placed in context, put front and centre, and to be addressed in as best as we can. Uh, But Jamaica is, as you would see, uh, a country that is very proud of our history, very proud of what we have and uh, we are moving on. To William and Kate's credit, they both have very impressive poker faces. Their neutral smiles remained fixed. Yes, they really did, Erin. And I think, to a degree, palace media training prepares you for moments like this one. But it apparently prompted some important conversations between William and his staff. In March this year, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge boarded their plane emblazoned with ER2 and flew across the Atlantic Ocean. It marked the start of a much-anticipated royal tour of the Caribbean. In the space of just eight days, we caught a glimpse of exactly what the monarchy is faced with when it comes to the future of the Commonwealth. Even before they landed, it was clear they were not going to get an enthusiastic welcome. Protests caused them to divert their first set of plans. If he lands in PG at the airstrip... No problem, but not in our community. Yes, yes that's what Prince I'm... William made a speech about the fact that slavery never should have happened. But, crucially, he just didn't seem prepared to address the big issue. How do we move forward in an equitable way? I want to express my profound sorrow. Slavery was abhorrent, and it should never have happened. Well, maybe he didn't have the answers, but... Just before they left the Caribbean, William decided to release a statement, an important one in which he hinted he wouldn't be concerned if someone else from another country, possibly another culture, led this diverse organisation in the future. It was clear that he was thinking about the Commonwealth and its future and how it might be able to work and succeed in a world that is very different to when his grandmother came to the throne. That sort of statement would be unimaginable from the Queen. It's a sign that the days of never complain, never explain have come to an end. It's a really fraught situation for an heir to the throne, but in his own way, William is trying to face the issues. While William addressed these issues head on, he and Kate 
didn't manage to avoid some rather awkward photo opportunities that seemed to fuel this discourse of white supremacy, the royals visiting the former colonies. That image of William and Kate shaking the hands of Jamaican children through a fence, it was cropped, it wasn't the full picture, but the optics were terrible. This trip was a PR disaster. And of all the tours that I've done with the Cambridges, which have included New Zealand, Australia, Canada all Commonwealth countries, they've always received a really warm welcome. So what's going on here? Well, we've had the fallout from Windrush. We've had Black Lives Matter. And inevitably, this has all impacted on Britain and the royal family, and particularly how the royal family is perceived in the Commonwealth. Exactly. But if we look all the way back to the 60s, when the Queen and Prince Philip went on their month-long tour of the Caribbean, there was a very different reception. As the royal visitors drove through the streets of Georgetown to the public buildings, the people of Guyana added their own rousing greetings. After receiving an official welcome, the Queen and Prince Philip unveiled portraits of themselves in the chamber of the legislature. Katie, do you think that nowadays the era for grandiose royal tours is over? I don't know if it's over, Erin, but it might be time to do things differently. I think the Cambridges tour to the Caribbean and then Sophie and Edward, who postponed part of their tour just shows how sensitive the situation is. And I think for many decades there has been a tried and tested format for these royal tours. You know what I'm talking about, the tree planting, the unveiling of plaques. But I think there's a sense that the whole thing just needs a a little bit of a revival. You know, William and Kate got a mixed response while they were out there in the Caribbean. There were protests, we know, but also a lot of people turned up to cheer them on and to support them. So... I think the success of these tours and the future of these tours depends on the royals making a genuine connection with the people and the countries. That's crucial. This time, William and Kate didn't come away from the Caribbean with a PR treasure chest of charming photos and successful meet and greets. In fact, there are more questions than ever about the civic roles the royals play. It's most stark around the Commonwealth countries, but similar conversations are happening within Britain as well. But if it were Meghan and Harry in their shoes, would they have been received in the same way? In fact, was the other royal couple a catalyst for William and Kate's reckoning? When you bring into focus the more recent incident, the alleged racism within the royal family, I think that people were appalled, quite frankly. In this episode, we'll look at the Commonwealth and the role the royals play in it, and what the future might look like for this family of nations. We'll hear from Princess Diana's private secretary, Patrick Jeffson, on what the public expects from the royals, political journalist Peter Wickham on how difficult it is for the monarchy to break from accusations of historical racism, and journalist Afwa Hagen on how the Queen is perceived around the world. I'm Katie Nicholl. And I'm Erin Vanderhoof. From Vanity Fair, this is Dynasty, The Windsors. Episode 6, Imperial Guilt, The royals reckon with the Commonwealth's colonial past. All right, lay it out for me here. This is a complex topic for everyone. What is the Commonwealth? Well, on the face of it, it's fairly simple. It's a voluntary organisation of 54 nations that took its current shape in 1949 under the Queen's father, King George VI. Symbolically, at the head of it all today stands the Queen, And it's already been decided that Charles will succeed her as the next head of the Commonwealth. Now, 
These countries all share the same values, democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. And they meet every two years at Chogham, that's the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting, to discuss collective policies and initiatives. Technically, it should be one big happy family. And of course, I have heard of the massive sports competition every four years, the Commonwealth Games. Yes, it's a much-loved competition. But delving deeper, the Commonwealth has its roots in the British Empire. It evolved from when Britain controlled roughly a quarter of the world. But despite the dissolution of the empire, which started back in the 40s, 15 of the 54 nations in the Commonwealth still count the Queen as their head of state. And for many in some of these countries, the royals remain popular. And this is generations after independence. My interest in the royals has definitely stemmed from my mum, who I can quite firmly say that she's obsessed with the royal family. And I think I also think that's a very Ghanaian thing. Journalist Afua Hagen grew up in Scotland with Ghanaian parents. In 1957, Ghana declared its independence from the British Empire. Ghanaian people have always kind of had this real love affair with the royal family, with the queen. Often Ghanaian families would have like pictures of the queen up in their house. Like it's that deep, you know? One of the times in my life I remember most vividly when I was a teenager was when Princess Diana died. My mum literally, literally went into mourning. Like she wore black for like two weeks. She wouldn't go to work. I was like, hold on. I mean, because like, were you related to Princess Diana? And and we and I'm just finding out. Oh no, you just loved her that much. Like that's how deep it was. Even still now, Ghanaian people love the royal family, and I think it is quite a specific West African thing. So the feelings towards the royal family aren't the same throughout the countries of the Commonwealth. Jamaica might be moving on, but as we heard from Afwa, feelings can be very different in Ghana. It has a lot to do with the circumstances around independence. Australia, for example, had incorporated aspects of the British government into their federal system and wanted to keep a close connection to the country. Some experienced independence as the beginning of rising living standards and a tradition of democracy. For others, independence was the beginning of years of conflict and struggle. It's so interesting, the perspective on the royal family from a kind of West African post colonialism, post-empire point of view. I think the the interest in the royal family is 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 quite different from a British interest and we and we sort of see them differently. So they're just up there, they're in a completely different class from everybody else, and we love them and they can do no wrong. And the Queen is, you know, the pinnacle of British society and she's incredible and, you know, we love her. And even though, you know, we're not a country that's ruled by the Queen anymore, you still have that kind of love for her, which I've always kind of, it's a dichotomy to me because we wanted independence. We almost went to war for it, but we still regale the royal family. It's almost like, you know, they're our distant cousins and we still love them from afar, but you don't rule us anymore. You know, we still love you guys, but thanks for not having us in chains. In this year's annual Commonwealth Day message, the Queen referred to the group as a family of nations. And the thing is, British identity is wrapped up in this complicated family. If you're just looking at the surface level, things like tea and chicken tikka masala are staples of British consumption, though they have cultural roots in former colonies. But on a deeper level, due in part to immigration, the close connection with the Commonwealth explains why Britain is such a multicultural society today. And this is one of the reasons the Queen has made upholding the Commonwealth one of her top priorities— 
It's personal because her father was instrumental in its development, but it's always been important to her, and she's rightfully very proud of all the Commonwealth has achieved. Right. And she knew how important it was going to be right from its early days, even before she ascended to the throne. In 1947, on her 21st birthday, she gave a speech dedicating her life in service of the Commonwealth. My whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and to the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. The Queen gave this speech just a few years after she'd served in the Women's Auxiliary Territorial Service in World War II. Now, for the Queen, public and voluntary service is one of the most important elements of her work. She transformed the civic role of the royals around the Commonwealth, but also within Britain. Throughout her reign, her schedule has included small-scale visits to organizations and her patronages to connect with citizens and see charity in action. But it was actually on a 1970 royal tour to Australia that she started walkabouts, which replace a grand procession with an opportunity to chat with people on the streets. Yes, it was the birth of the mantra that we know her by today. I have to be seen to be believed. And this idea breathed new life into foreign visits and eventually was adapted back at home because it was such a success. And today, it's the backbone of royal work. Some of my earliest memories relate to times my parents spoke to me, um, or even better, showed me what it meant to have both privilege and responsibilities. Here is Prince William giving the keynote at an annual meeting of the UK government's Charity Commission back in 2018. I remember being taken by my mother to a homelessness shelter at a young age. Her explaining to me why the people I met there matter uh, and why no society can be healthy unless we take other people seriously. From my father, I learned how central charity was to his life and his sense of purpose. The Prince's Trust is not an arm's length organisation for my father. He cares deeply about the Prince's Trust because it is a living projection of his values. He goes on to describe how he sees charity and philanthropy as essential to his role as a royal. Without my realising it, what my parents were doing was instilling in me and Harry a lifelong habit to put charity at the heart of our lives. It's evident that both William and Harry have taken these lessons really seriously and made service a huge part of their life. In 2009, the two of them established the Royal Foundation to support their philanthropic efforts. Harry has made injured veterans and mental health keystone issues of his career. And William has tackled issues like the environment and conservation efforts. Kate joined the foundation after her marriage to William, and she thought long and hard about the role she wanted to play. As a patron for different charities, she's made a commitment to hospices and palliative care for young people. And she's been very focused on the issues affecting youth, like addiction and mental health. Now, of course, we know she is heavily focused on her early years campaign. What we're seeing is this new generation of royals doing charity differently. William and Harry took their lead from their parents and their grandparents, but they created their own model. So rather than take on hundreds of patronages and charities, they've made a point of not spreading themselves too thin and consolidating their efforts. And in doing so, they've been able to make a real impact. Just look at the success of their Heads Together campaign. Mental health awareness is now a national issue, in part down to them. 
But when Megan came onto the scene, she already had the experience to bring some of her own ideas to the table. It's February 28, 2018 in London, just a month after Prince William's address. The Fab Four are geared up for their first official joint appearance. They're speaking at a forum for the Royal Foundation. On this day, it's the organization's first forum with Meghan joining as Harry's fiance. They walk on stage and take their seats in a row under the words, making a difference together. I just think being able to sort of come together to find some sort of common ground and be able to sort of, um, yeah, draw ideas together and find a way forward, I think was really, really exciting. We pride ourselves on going into a, going into a situation, convening people and listening. But it's really, I think it's really good that, the, that we've got, you know, four, four different personalities and, you know, we've all got that same, that same passion to want to make a difference, but, you know, different opinions. And I think those opinions work really, really well. Changing mindsets and all of that is part of this communication that we have constantly. But I think what we can bring as the Royal Foundation is that convening effort. And I think if you put some of the big foundations in the world together, along with our convening power of the Royal Foundation, and if we focus on certain big issues, hopefully global, I think we could make a really, really big difference. On stage that evening, however, we get a glimpse that not all is as it seems. The first signs of a royal rift. I have to ask you, all the work you do together is great, but working together as family, do you ever have disagreements about things? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> healthy, healthy disagreements. Okay, the last thing you disagreed on, how do you resolve it? Uh, I can't remember, they come so thick and fast. <laughs> but it's, but it's, is it resolved? We don't know. Oh, we don't know. Well, you're putting on a great show if it's not. In hindsight, you look back at that moment, and of course, knowing what we know now, you really can see that there is this awkward dynamic between them. I remember being told that that moment at the foundation was a real wake-up call for William and Kate. It was very clear that Meghan knew her stuff and she had big ideas. And I think William and Kate were probably protective of their foundation and they had their own vision. Listening to that clip again, it's so telling, Erin, I think, that they don't bat away the suggestion that they don't always see eye to eye. The thick and fast comment is an example of Harry's sense of humor, which is sort of like an anti-sense of humor. The joke is funny because it's true. But William's issues with Meghan seem to go beyond his conflicts with his younger brother and Meghan's charismatic approach. This didn't come out until Robert Lacey reported it later in 2020. According to Lacey, William thought Meghan's political causes were too trendy and disharmonious, as exemplified by that 2019 issue of British Vogue she edited. It didn't go with his vision of what the monarchy should be. When William mentioned this to Harry, it apparently caused a really bad argument. Well, I think for William, some of Meghan's causes might have veered too close to politics. But she was never going to stop speaking out about the things that matter to her. Let's remember that we're dealing with someone who's been speaking against sexism on the news since she was 11 years old. Meghan has said that women have a voice, they need to be empowered... And she's going to use her voice. And we heard it from the very beginning when she said she wanted to hit the ground running, which is exactly what she did. Working as, as family does have its challenges. Of course it does. Everybody here, the fact that everyone's laughing means that everybody <laughs> knows exactly what it's like. Um, but um, look, we're stuck together for the rest of our lives. So. But they didn't stick together. Harry and Meghan quit their roles and left, triggering a major crisis for the Crown. Still to come on Vanity Fair's Dynasty. It's, it's odd that you would 
have a situation where I'm a Barbadian, I lived here all my life, and I could never become head of state. And, you know, Prince George will. And, and I think that that's where the conversation started to appeal to many of us that are, are in that community and say, look, we need to start thinking about this thing. We'll take a look at how the Fab Four's version of the Royal Foundation fell apart and the challenges for the royals that lie ahead. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. From the very beginning, there is a subtle conflict on display, with William and Kate on one side and Meghan and Harry on the other. Should the royals stay completely neutral on the major issues, or are some things just too important to ignore? Do we lead from behind, or do we innovate and follow trends? Do we go with tradition, or do we expand and try something new? But as any historian can tell you, this struggle is as old as the Windsors themselves. During the last few decades of the 20th century, this debate revolved around one woman, Princess Diana. As she became more confident on the world stage, she oversaw a rebirth of royal charity as a way to attract eyeballs, even if it meant breaking a little protocol. Well, Diana was the master of pushing those royal protocols and tearing up the royal rule book. She recognized how important charity was to the royal family, but she thought outside the box and developed a new way for the royals to do charity. We think we know these royal people through their work, through the causes they associate with. It doesn't necessarily tell us much about their personalities. Patrick Jefferson was Diana's private secretary for nearly eight years. He was by her side as she navigated the demands of her new role. But it does tell us about how they see their side of the contract. And the contract between royal people and the public is that the royal people can expect to live in palaces, ride in coaches, and be called Your Royal Highness if they fulfill public expectations of service and sacrifice. Where there is a mismatch between the privilege and the sacrifice, then the royal people are in trouble. Princess Diana often used her public profile in the service of others to raise awareness for causes that were really important to her. She seemed to believe in service even outside of its value to the crown. She was president or patron of organizations that actually mattered to her. And she saw her potential or her role increasingly as drawing attention to causes with which she felt sympathy. Sympathy in the sense that she could identify with people who, for example, were excluded. She felt she had been excluded from the royal mainstream. She felt she had been rejected by the royal family. That gave her a natural affinity with people who were marginalized or stigmatized. That's why she was drawn towards causes, gritty, uh, controversial causes, like HIV AIDS, 
like leprosy, homelessness, addiction, mental health, domestic violence. These are not traditional royal, royal areas for charity work. Diana made these her own. Harlem Hospital stands in the middle of one of the most dangerous areas of New York, plagued by violence, drugs and poverty. No president, few leading political figures come here, so the personal decision by the princess to visit a children's AIDS ward was warmly welcomed. When Diana started doing charity the way she did, with physical contact, with emotion and real feeling, it was revolutionary. But not everyone in the royal family approved. The Queen apparently struggled to understand why Diana wanted to do the sort of work she was doing with people with AIDS and leprosy. But Diana felt it was her role to help the most marginalised people in society. I think that says a lot about why Diana remains so popular. She made something really impressive out of bad circumstances. And she used her platform to do something way beyond the expectations of a princess. I think Meghan and Harry tried to use the privilege of being a part of the monarchy to launch something way bigger. They took a page from Diana's playbook and bucked royal tradition when it meant that they could do something good for the world. So let's go back to what, in hindsight, was the high watermark of their experiment in being global royal rock stars, the 2019 tour of Southern Africa. It was incredibly important for my wife and I to begin our trip to South Africa here in Yanga. We're all with you, so thank you for having us. Katie, you were there in South Africa in September 2019. What was it like? Well, we kicked off the tour in a township in South Africa. I remember watching Harry and Meghan meditate on the beach with some surfers. And of course, they introduced the then four-month-old Archie to Archbishop Desmond Tutu. So it was different, Erin, and certainly not what I've come to expect of a royal tour. It felt fresh, it felt different, and it was brilliant. And then, of course, there was that very memorable speech. While I'm here with my husband, as a member of the royal family, I want you to know that for me, I am here with you as a mother, as a wife, as a woman, as a woman of color, and as your sister. That was a wow moment. The applause Megan got said it all, and you could just see what an impact she was having. Here's political journalist Peter Wickham. When Markle presented herself as a Black member of the royal family, you know, everyone thought, finally, this diversity coming to Buckingham Palace. And I frankly thought that the Queen would have been elated to be able to say, you know, there are finally some Black people in this family. The Queen was thrilled to welcome Meghan into her family, and I think she saw her potential from the outset. Meghan had attended Harry's and Victor's games when she was still a royal girlfriend, and I think the Queen saw that she was a grafter. When it came to the Commonwealth, the Queen recognised how successful Harry and Meghan could be, and she made them President and Vice President of the Queen's Commonwealth Trust. These were really prize roles, and in October 2018, they set off for a tour of Australia, Fiji, Tonga, and New Zealand, which was very well received. In this great family of nations, the Commonwealth, Meghan was a real asset. But with a flip of a switch, things changed. After 10 days of headlines in Africa that were PR gold for the royal family, Meghan did an interview with ITV news journalist Tom Bradby. It's obviously an area one has to tiptoe into very gently, but I don't know what the impact on your physical and mental health of all the pressure that you clearly feel under. Um, I would say 
Look, any woman when they're, especially when they're pregnant, you're really vulnerable. And especially as a woman, it's really, it's a lot. So you add this on top of just trying to be a new mom or trying to be a newlywed, it's, um, yeah, well, I guess, and also thank you for asking, because not many people have asked if I'm okay, but it's, uh, it's a very real thing to be going through behind the scenes. And the answer is, would it be fair to say not really okay, since it's really been a struggle? Yes. It was the first big interview that Harry and Meghan had given since their wedding, and it was very enlightening. We had all spent months reading a ticker tape of complaints about Meghan in the press, yet every time she appeared in public, she had this ease and comfort about her, like she could just skate above it. This was the first time that I realized that even her natural sparkle couldn't overcome a situation that would make anybody feel like garbage. Saying she wasn't okay was her admitting that she had been acting and that it was affecting her mental health. Well, it was quite unorthodox, given the Queen's mantra is never complain, never explain. Probably the most hard-hitting words were from Meghan, who said it wasn't enough to survive. You have to thrive too. And she wouldn't talk specifically about experiencing racism until much later in the Oprah interview. But for me at least, this moment was her first true expression of what it was like to be a Black woman in what we might call the whitest family in the world. And her review of the experience was negative. I think this is part of the risk that the palace didn't know how to evaluate. People are going to look at what you do and not what you say. If you have one biracial person ever in your family and that person has a truly horrible experience and they leave, it reflects poorly on the status of people of color in your family. Well, perhaps William could see what was lying ahead, but I was told by one of my sources that he saw this as a crisis moment and he picked up the phone to Harry. But it was too little, too late. Harry and Meghan were already planning their exit from the royal family. And by 2021 those prized Commonwealth roles would be gone. In the years since Harry and Meghan left for California, the future of the Commonwealth got rockier than anyone could have anticipated. Barbados officially removes the Queen as head of state, becoming the world's newest republic. Yes, in November of last year, Barbados became the world's newest republic. It remains in the Commonwealth, but now Dame Sandra Mason is president and head of state. It's it's odd that you would have a situation where I'm a Barbadian. I lived here all my life and I could never become head of state. And, you know, Prince George will. And, and I think that that's where the conversation started to appeal to many of us that are, are in that community and say, look, we need to start thinking about this thing. Peter Wickham again. And we need to start constructing our own institutions in our own way. But then when you bring into focus the more recent incident, you know, the, the alleged racism within the royal family, I think that people were appalled, quite frankly. But appalled at a level where there's not a whole lot of surprise because if you think about it long enough, there's good reason to believe that the institution is is stuck in an age that has passed and the racism is, is all part of that. When we start to construct our own consciousness, though, we're able to start to build a, a reflection of, of who we are and what we, we see ourselves as. It helps us to answer one important question, which is, can I become a head of state of Barbados? And no, the answer is yes. <laughs> And after the Union flag was lowered, the Queen was no longer the head of state, and a new national figure was announced. On behalf of a grateful nation, but an even prouder people, we therefore present to you the designee for National Hero of Barbados, Ambassador Robin 
Rihanna Fenty. May you continue to shine like a diamond. Rihanna has had such a huge impact on the world, but she's also a symbol of how Caribbean culture, music, and food has taken off in America, too. Barbados declared political independence in 1966, but elevating their homegrown heroes is a way of saying they have cultural independence, too. And in addition to Rihanna, there was another guest of honor, Prince Charles. He delivered something of a farewell speech to Barbados, and he did something quite unique for a member of the royal family. He didn't mince his words about Britain's role in the transatlantic slave trade. Prince Charles, in a speech in the capital Bridgetown to mark the occasion, acknowledged that British history had forever been a stain of, uh, seen the stain of atrocity and slavery. Barbados is regarded as the birthplace in the 17th century of British slaving society in the Caribbean. The country will remain in the Commonwealth. From the darkest days of our past and the appalling atrocity of slavery, which forever stains our history, the people of this island forged their path with extraordinary fortitude. I think it was important that Charles emphasized the strength of Barbados's current citizens, along with their connections to their ancestors. He acknowledged their history and their autonomy. It's not about treating the past like it never happened, but about giving Barbados credit for establishing a robust country in spite of the way slavery made that a nearly impossible task for them. Well, you could see it wasn't easy seeing his mother officially removed as head of state, but Charles was humble and his speech hit all the right notes, but it clearly wasn't enough. And as we see in Jamaica, other countries are following Barbados's lead to become republics. I think the Sussexes leaving made this even more difficult for the Windsors. Meghan has an authority on these matters that she built through experience and hard work. And Harry, and more particularly Meghan, left a power vacuum in their absence when it comes to who will take the lead on embracing the Commonwealth. I think that the marketing of the institution as a modern institution could certainly be helped a lot if she, if she had remained. Here's Peter Wickham again. And if they had remained uh, active royals, um, if their child had been part of that family, I think diversity sells, you know, it, it works well, and they've missed a, an amazing marketing opportunity. But how much of this is down to modernization, and how much has just been forged by the family itself? And in the future, can the royals hang on to the Commonwealth? Well, Aaron, Charles isn't going to want the Commonwealth to die out with his reign, and we've already had a hint about how William sees things moving forwards in the future. But the challenge is going to be how to make it work and how to keep everyone happy. Charles, we know, will succeed his mother as the next head of the Commonwealth, but will he be as revered and as loved as the Queen? After the, the monarch closes her eyes, the uh, unfortunate thing is that those coming after her have moral imperfections, which I think that you will be less inclined to tolerate. And the good thing with, with Queen Elizabeth is that, you know, she presented this uh, unrealistic picture of morality, which is not reflected in many of her, her children, certainly not her grandchildren. In the next episode, we'll look at the royal's relationship with the press. Are the tabloids a necessary evil? And who holds the power in this complicated relationship? The Windsors or Fleet Street? The uh, monarchy needs the media more than the media needs the monarchy. The monarchy knows they need to be seen right, in order to be understood and in order to be accepted. 
So it, it relies on the media to maintain it, and they have to perform adequately for the media in, in return for their privilege, and in ways that is very, very harmful sometimes, I think, to the individuals inside the royal family. All that on the next episode of Dynasty, The Windsors. Dynasty is hosted by Katie Nichol and me, Aaron Vanderhoof, and is produced by Vanity Fair in partnership with something else. Lizzie Jacobs is our executive producer. Darby Doris and Brian Erstadt are our editors. Rob Dozier, Zoe Edwards, Chica Ayers, and Sylvie Lubo are our producers. Ginny Bloom is our showrunner. Basha Curtin and Jessica Jones are our associate producers. And E.K. Ekbatola, Lily Hambly, and Peyton Hayes are our production coordinators. This episode was engineered by Josh Gibbs, and the theme song was composed by Wooly Music. Fact-checking was done by Sarah Karlevsky. Dynasty was conceived by Vanity Fair executive editor Claire Howarth. Claire and Katie Rich are our staff editorial consultants. Thank you to our guests, Patrick Jeffson, Peter Wickham, and Afua Hagen. If you love the show, be sure to rate, review, and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more Dynasty, visit bf.com forward slash dynasty. And you can follow Vanity Fair on Instagram and Twitter at Vanity Fair. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Review's Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. 